Happy March break to those of you for whom that applies, and I hope that you do get a little bit of a rest, especially for those of you working in the school system. Um, I'm guessing if we had 10 minutes to sit down and talk together, um, I could probably come up with what was probably the most important thing in your house growing up. I think in every home and every family, there are certain things that just kind of rise to the top as the most important thing. Maybe it's cleanliness, clean hands, clean room, you know, clean underwear, uh, so on and so forth. You just need to be clean. This is the most important thing. Maybe it's manners and politeness. Uh, Maybe that's what mattered most. Maybe it was grades. I mean, I don't care if you're robbing convenience stores at night. As long as you're getting excellent marks in school, that's all that matters in our house. Maybe it's honesty. I mean, you're 10 years old, you're in the basement smoking, and uh, your mom says, hey, are you down there smoking? And you lie and say no, and your mother's more upset that you've lied to her about smoking than the fact that you're downstairs in the basement smoking. Every home has certain things that rise to the top that we would say, this is probably the most important thing in our family growing up. Maybe in your workplace, it's the similar way. You've got certain slogans or certain values in your workplace that are the most important. Teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, Maybe you would say the bottom, the most important thing in my company, we don't talk about it. It's not anything in print, but it's make as much money as you can at whatever cost. We don't care what you have to do. Just make this thing as profitable as possible. I worked in a place one summer when I was in high school where safety was the most important thing. And we were going through endless safety protocols and trainings, which was all very helpful. But then someone got seriously injured. And I remember for like two or three weeks, the whole place was just heavy. Because we, we, we broke the most important rule, which in that workplace was safety. We've been going through this series on spiritual habits, and today I'm so grateful that Jesus did not leave us wondering what the most important thing was about our lives as his followers. I am so grateful that he did not leave it unclear to us. You and I can debate all kinds of things, and we can bring our Bibles and have arguments about certain issues, but on this matter, but what is most important about the Christian life, we cannot disagree, because Jesus made it abundantly clear. He said it in black and white many, many times. What is the most important thing about the Christian life? We've been talking about spiritual habits over these last number of weeks, and we issued you a challenge um, that you would start and end your each day with a spiritual practice of prayer scripture and reflection. We gave you an app, and I know that technically the three weeks is up starting tomorrow, but we hope that you'll keep going. We hope that this is just a new habit in your life and that you will continue to sustain it. Maybe you need to find a new resource or something new, but this practice of spending time at the beginning and the end of each day with the Lord has been really, really helpful to you. But our hope was if we could get as many people in our church family as possible practicing this together, then we would use Sunday mornings to kind of teach on how is it that God transforms us and grows our faith. And so we talked the first week about how Jesus needed to spend time in prayer with his heavenly Father. He needed to. He wasn't just doing it to role model it to us so that we would do it. He needed to. So if he needed to, how much more so do we? We talked about the fact that the goal of spiritual transformation, or the goal of spiritual habits is transformation. That the goal of the Christian life isn't to read your Bible and to pray. That's not the goal. Those are tools that God has given to us that help us get to the point which is transformation. 
that the Spirit of God is living within us and is working to transform us into the image of Jesus more and more the longer we live our lives. Meaning this, that if you become a Christian when you're 10 and you die when you're 150 and you've never changed, you've done it wrong. That we should expect that the longer we walk with Jesus, the more like Him we become. That this should be the standard expectation of every follower of Jesus. And how we do that is through prayer and through scripture reading and through reflection and repentance and Sabbath keeping and submission and silence and all of these spiritual practices that we have available to us that God uses to shape and make us more and more into his image. And then we talked about the fact (laughs) that practicing prayer and scripture every day could actually backfire and ruin our hearts. And that you could read your Bible and pray every day, and at the end of the week, you're just miserable at the people in your house who didn't. Right? Which isn't the point. That if you read your Bible and prayed every day for the last three weeks, God does not love you any more than He did before. He's not more likely to answer your prayers, He's not more likely to give you a better performance review and a raise at work. That's not what it's about. And if you didn't read your Bible maybe more than five times or two times or you didn't do it at all, and quite frankly, you were annoyed at the fact that I would tell you what to do. He does not love you any less. Now, mind you, you've missed out on 21 days of spending time with Jesus where his spirit could be active and transforming you in your life, but he doesn't love you any less. And as Christians, it's important that we get these right. And then last week, Pastor Sandy reminded us that, you know, we start this practice in the morning, we finish it at the end of the day, and the hope that is all of those points in between, we might see as opportunities for God to be at work in our lives. And she uh, so beautifully captured even just a hobby of hers and how we can turn all of these different parts of our daily life and live them unto unto the Lord. And today we're going to talk about what Jesus said was the most important important thing, that it's non-negotiable, that if you don't get anything else right, we have to get this right. This is the thing we have to understand and have at the center of our faith and have it on our minds and have it on our hearts each and every day because Jesus said it's the most important thing. I want you to turn in your Bibles today to Matthew chapter 22. It's on page 1535, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start reading at verse 34, and you can follow along or look it up on your phone or just listen as well. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, now that's a loaded sentence, we'll come back to it in a minute, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him, that is Jesus, with this question, teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, Jesus, in the the passage before this, has just really angered a religious group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the people who thought, basically, we know the Bible better than anybody. We're the Bible experts. And Jesus said to them, you don't know anything about the Bible. You're fools, essentially. He insulted them. And they were a little bit rattled. In fact, Matthew records... They were silenced. (laughs) 
So the Pharisee comes up to Jesus, hoping to get a different result. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were not friends. They were competitors, and, um, but they're teaming up together in this moment because they're trying to trick Jesus with these questions. And he asks this question, of all the commandments, which is the best? Now, that's a great question. And maybe if you have ever read your Bible from beginning to end, you've wondered that very same thing. Are all of these verses of equal weight and value for my life? Or are some of them more important than others? Am I supposed to take all of them as seriously? Or are just maybe some of them way more important than some of the other verses in the Bible? That's a great, great question. I often say to people, the Bible is equally inspired, but not equally applied. The Bible is equally inspired, all of it, but it's not equally applied. And if it was all equally applied, I would not be here because my parents would have probably stoned me or classmates would have stoned me. I would have been killed multiple times uh, in my life and never made it um, this long. But this is the question that he asks. Jesus, if you're going to pick some commandments or some verses out of the scriptures and say these are the most important ones, which ones would you say? Now, again, for Jesus, he knows these religious leaders have a list of 613 commandments just in the first five books of the Bible. That some of them also uh, read the Mishnah, which was oral commentary about the Old Testament that had been written down that contained another 1,500 commandments. So we're now over 2,100 different commandments, and he wants to know what's the most important ones. What are the ones that I must hold to most fervently of all of them. Now, you might be reading this and thinking, yeah, that's a great question. That's the kind of question I would ask. I'll just tell you this. That question is a strange question to the large majority of the people in our culture today. As people of faith, it's not abnormal for us to say, if I want to know the meaning of life, what's most true about life and where life is found, that I can find it in the pages of Scripture. In other words, I can find it outside of myself. But the most common attitude today is, if I want to know what's true about life, I look in here. And I decide for myself what is ultimately true and where life can be found. But these people are going to the Scriptures, and Jesus is going to answer them. Let's look at verses 37 to 40 together. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, or the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. And he's quoting here a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I don't know how many of you have memorized all of the, Old all of the first five books of the Old Testament. Anybody? Okay, so I'll read it for you just because I haven't memorized it all either. Um, but I'll just read for you the, when Jesus says this, immediately their minds go to these verses. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When Jesus calls the people to love the Lord in this way, this is immediately the passage that they would have heard him talking about. And when Jesus talks about love here, he's talking about a loyal love, a covenant love, a committed love. Be loyal to God as God has been loyal to you. Be loyal to him with your heart. Be loyal to him with your soul. Be loyal to him with your mind. Remember the context is, in the book of Deuteronomy, the people of God are about to enter into the promised land. They've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And God has been faithfully shepherding them, caring for them, providing for them, protecting them, disciplining them for 40 years. God has been loyal to them, committed to them, there with them every step of the way. And he says this to them, be as loyal to God as he has been to you. And these people would have had thousands of of examples of the ways in which God had been loyal to them as they journeyed through the promised land. And they could easily imagine what loyal love really, really looked like. Now, the way that Jesus talks about love is different than the way we hear love talked about in our day today. Today, there's a fine line between love and lust. It's microscopic. Today, most often when people talk about love, they talk about, I love you because you do something for me. I love you because you do something for me. This is kind of the way love is mostly used in our day. Whether it's movies, food, this shirt, my car, this app, my house, I love it because it does something for me. And I am at the center of this love. I mean, why would you love something if it doesn't do something for you, right? That is kind of the question of our day. And this kind of love oftentimes gets taken into relationships. And you don't have to be a PhD in psychology to know that no relationship can survive with that self-centered definition of love. When God talks about love, he's talking about a loyalty to the other person that goes beyond performance and feelings. And it's captured beautifully in how God looked after the people of Israel as they wandered through the wilderness. It was a loyal love. But that's not all. This passage makes it clear that this godly love means to be loyal to God with everything that you are. That we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. When it says, you know, talk about the Lord when you get up and Talk about the Lord when you go to bed. It's not just meaning at that time and then at this time and never in between. It's meaning at all points in between. That your day would be saturated with love for the Lord. He's saying, remember, God is, his mercy was not withheld from you at any point. He did not withhold anything from you at any point. So if we're going to love the Lord, we love him with our whole selves. So we means we can't say, you know, uh, I give you my time, but not my money. I give you money, but not my sex life. I give you my sex life, but not my anger. The anger is all mine. That's not the way discipleship works. In discipleship, we give our whole selves 
unto the Lord and are loyal to Him with it all. And Jesus says, this is what's most important to me, that we would love the Lord like this with a loyal love where we give our all to Him, which makes us ask some questions. And the most important question I want you to think about today, and we'll be thinking about it as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, is have you experienced this kind of a loyal love? A love without conditions. A love that is not keeping score of your performance. A love where the affection for you is unchanging. You are God's creation, and He loves you. It has the power to transform your life if you would open your heart to it. Next, Jesus says to these religious leaders who want to know what's the most important thing, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes here a verse from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Does anybody have Leviticus 19 memorized? Okay, I'll read it. Um, Verses 13 to 18. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. That's a really good verse. Don't hold back wages from people that you employ. That's another really good verse. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, for I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the rich, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Another great verse. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, even though you might be tempted to set like a bear trap or something outside. Don't do it. Do not hate your your fellow Israelite. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so he will not share, you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when I hear these verses, the hardest word for me is the word neighbor. If God had said, if Jesus had said, love the world or love humanity, that would be so much more inviting to me because neighbor doesn't have a face. Neighbor doesn't have a name. Neighbor doesn't have bad B.O. or eat with their mouth open or drive 20 kilometers an hour under the speed limit. Neighbors don't you know, forget to mow their lawn half the summer or don't clean up after their dog or so on and so on. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he's directing us to the specific people in our life. So I want you just to stop for a second. Close your eyes. Those of you online, you can do this too. I want you to think about the people that live around you live across the street in your neighborhood, in your apartment building, in your university dorm. Just think about them. (laughs) Think about the people in your workplace and the cubicles all around you, people that you have to spend time in meetings with. Think about all of these people. And Jesus says, love them. Don't tolerate them. Don't just be friendly to them. He has the audacity to say that the most important thing to me about people of faith is that we would place the well-being of these people at the center of our lives. And we just need to stop and pause for a second and reflect on the incredible and heavy and joyful opportunity that that presents to each and every one of us to live that out in practice. Look, let's be honest. The call to love our neighbor, I mean, wouldn't it be great if the reputation of Christians today was they believe weird things, like no doubt, but they're the best neighbors. 
They have the weirdest theology, (laughs) but they're the most loving people you're ever going to meet. You want to work for one of these Christians. You want to have one as your neighbor. You want your kids to marry one because they're the kindest, most respectful, thoughtful, forgiving, gracious people you're ever going to come in contact with. Wouldn't that be great if that was the reputation of Christians today? Sadly, I don't think it is. I think you know that. Let me just share something. This is my opinion. So I'm now moving into opinion column here. And you can argue with me later. I would love it. Send me an email. We can talk about it. That would be great. But I've been thinking about this a lot. And here's just a thought, a reflection I want to share with you. I think one of the reasons when people think of Christians, they do not think of people who are loving their neighbors well, is because as Christians, sometimes we have replaced loving our neighbor with being right. And we've made being right the most important thing about our faith. And we've kind of taken loving your neighbor and we've just moved it down the list a little bit. That loving our neighbor falls to a lower position in our priority list. What we really want everybody to know is that we're right about certain things. And what happens, and again, this is just my opinion, is that once we are convinced that we are right, we're now excused from loving people. Because if the most important thing is being right, then the worst, the most offensive thing is being wrong. And if someone is wrong, you're very unlikely to try and to love them. And Jesus says what's most important, regardless of whether your neighbor is right or wrong, is that we love them with the same kind of love that Jesus loved us when we were wrong. For while we were still wrong. (laughs) Christ died for us. And I think our challenge as the church today is to reinstate loving our neighbor as the most important thing as believers. I love this quote, love is loyalty and commitment to serve a person, think about this, so that they become more like Jesus, even if it means I give up my own rights and privileges. to love someone so that they can come to faith and experience the joy of Christ, even if, and it will, mean giving up our rights and our privileges. This is what love looks like in Jesus' economy. And so a few questions as we think about loving our neighbor. Am I living with a sense that everybody I meet is created in the image of God? Everybody, no excuses. Have I labeled people and have those labels become an excuse not to show love, kindness, patience, or mercy to people? Am I having more and more moments in my life where I hear someone share their story with me and my first response is compassion? And I think about the grace of God that I've experienced and how their life would benefit from experiencing that same grace as well. So Jesus is confronted by these Bible experts and they're asking him, Jesus, of all the verses, what's most important? And Jesus, without blinking an eye, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And as we conclude this series on spiritual habits, I want to end by saying this. Love must be the way we measure our spiritual maturity. 
love must be the metric by which we determine whether or not we are growing in our faith. Love for God and love for others must be the litmus test that we look to to see, am I really becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? That is the goal for us. Not how busy I am at church or how much I read my Bible or how much I pray. All of those things are good and important things. And they will, if done properly, will create in us a greater love for God. Because as you read your Bible and you see his love and patience for the people of Israel again and again, and you see the life and ministry of Jesus, God's unconditional love lived out, as you read the scriptures, your heart and your imagination should be stretched with how much I can love the Lord. And that's the win. Can you imagine if this was what was happening, not just in our church, but all of the churches around our country, that our capacity to grow and love God was expanding and our capacity to grow and love people as the most important thing was expanding too, how God might move in our day. Let's pray. Lord, if there's any question or doubt about what love really looks like, real, true love, we find it in the invitation that you've extended us today to meet you at this table. This table whereby we have zero claim, where not a millimeter of it is earned or deserved. It is all grace that when we were sinful and rebellious and doing whatever we wanted to do, you sent Christ to die for our sins. And so today, Lord, as we gather at this table, we remember this is the perfect example of what love really looks like. And so as we meet here this morning, would you grow our ability to love you and our neighbor, we pray. Amen.